0: Sandy Garasino, writer, former Crown Prosecutor. Welcome back to Shortcuts, where we talk shit about the news.
2: Great to be here, Jesse. I haven't heard your voice for a long time, so great to talk to you.
0: It's been too long. Today on the show, a multi-million dollar public inquiry finally reveals the true enemy of Alberta oil. Reality. It turns out it was reality and science all along. They've been out to get the tar sands. Uh, Also, Sandy, if you can't beat them, pay them. Facebook and the Globe and Mail join forces, and I want in on the action. (laughs) We'll get into it. Well, let's. This episode is brought to everybody by Steve Charters, Deborah English, Elizabeth Loftus, Marcus Medford, Jessica Byron... Chris Hutton, Cosmo in Sudbury, and Zach.
2: I'm Zach, a photographer in Toronto, and I support Canada Land because my frustration with this country writ large is often mirrored in the frustrations aired on the network shows. These folks are holding to account some pretty big players, and their tone in recent years seems appropriate to the severity or stupidity of each case. And Jesse's fallibility is something we can all relate to.
0: Sandy, I believe that Jason Kenney ran on a promise to not only set up a war room to fight messaging from Alberta's enemies, but, but I, I think it was a, a campaign promise that he was going to get to the bottom of the foreign money that was secretly funneling in to so-called environmentalist organizations so that they could landlock Alberta oil under the guise of trying to save the planet. Here is what that sounded like when news of this inquiry was reported in 2019.
2: Saying Canada is seen as an easy target, the Alberta government is launching a public inquiry into the campaign against the province's energy sector. The UCP will spend
1: a $2.5 million on a public inquiry into foreign-funded special interest groups. The opposition NDP calls the inquiry the equivalent of hiring someone to do a
0: glorified Google search. A commissioner appointed by the government will have a year to do some digging,
2: including to potentially compel witness testimony.
0: So this was widely covered That uh, this accountant had been hired by Jason Kenney, two and a half million dollars. Then it got bumped up to three and a half million. He was going to get to the bottom of this and track back, follow the money, and then the deadline for the actual investigation, this audit, this inquiry, it, it got pushed back again and again. And now, as I understand it, it's finally upon us. We're about to get the report, but the report leaked. And you have read it. I have read it. Tell me who's to blame. Who has been out to get uh, Alberta, this anti-Alberta agenda?
2: So what I have read, and I have read the entirety of the report, and I mean, to say that this is a dog's breakfast is an insult to dog's breakfasts, because the commissioner, Steve Allen, made his findings without ever hearing from any of the organizations or examining any of the original documentation. He doesn't know anything about the intent of any of the grants that he's writing about, but he's making findings that a whole slew of them are anti-Albertan. He is sending his findings to all of the groups that he's found to be anti-Albertan. And then ask them, you know, before I sentence you, would you like to say anything in your own defense kind of thing? So we don't know what the groups are saying In response to this, not having been heard in over two years, all we know is that he found that there was no conspiracy. This was the big thing, that it was supposed to be this big conspiracy by shadowy American corporate interests that were really the puppet masters behind the scenes that were pulling all the strings and making environmentalists and indigenous groups oppose Alberta energy projects. So he found that there was no conspiracy. But he did find that a huge number of these organizations were part of an anti-Alberta campaign. And what was really pretty gross about it, I mean, just about everything about this is gross, but what's especially odious about this is that almost every major conservation project in Canada has been determined to be anti-Albertan in nature, because it could be used possibly to be a limit on tar sands development. So that's the news. Number one, there's no conspiracy. Everybody is motivated by altruistic and appropriate planet and climate motives. But two, they're all anti-Albertan anyway.
0: This is a crazy mess, and I think it's hard to wrap one's head around it, but this really is a dominant conspiracy theory that goes back quite some time, and I think it's something that Ezra Levant has been shouting about for years, and then there was this so-called researcher, Vivian Krauss, who turned out to be getting paid by some of the interests that she was researching for their conclusions. But essentially the idea that the people who say they're crusading for indigenous rights or for climate change— That's a bullshit rationale. Really, these are just the AstroTurf agents of big money U.S. interests who actually have dirtier oil, and they're trying to landlock Alberta oil just for their own selfish market needs. And that's what makes them anti-Alberta. So that's a very popular idea I haven't read the report. What you're telling me is that there's bupkis because what would a smoking gun be? A smoking gun would be to actually trace back the funding of Greenpeace, of Dogwood, of these various groups and find, aha, we trace this to one of these very wealthy American or or otherwise foreign interests or Saudi interests that has a conflicting interest with the Alberta oil sands. That did not happen, but yet he still did conclude... That that all of these groups are anti-Alberta because he defines anti-Alberta as just anything critical of oil sands development. Do I have that right?
2: Not even critical of oil sands development. The overwhelming majority of the money that he has found to be anti-Albertan went into marine conservation. Or land conservation, like the Great Bear Rainforest or the Canadian Boreal Forest Initiative, Arctic conservation and preservation, had nothing to do with the oil sands. There's a small subgroup of the funding that went to the tar sands campaign, which actually is anti-oil sands is trying to landlock Canadian oil, they're standing up, waving their arms and saying, we are guilty. Yes, it is true. We are trying to stop the development of the Canadian oil sands and tar sands. Yes, we are doing that. But that's just a very, that's not even 10% of what he found to be anti-Albertan. Most of the money that he found to be anti-Albertan in nature went to the Great Bear Rainforest and Pacific uh, marine protection, all of this kind of thing. So there's a, there's an absurdity in it all.
0: The premise always struck me as faulty that, like, it's not enough of a smoking gun for me if you find that there are American funders who are fighting the oil sands because, like, Climate change does not respect the border. Like, anybody who's putting money into environmentalism in the States would very quickly find the oil sands as like, yeah, who can we fund to try to to, to yeah. stop this? That's not super incriminating to me. It's just this conspiracy idea that it's other fossil fuel interests that are like, yes. that would be something if they came up with that. Yeah, but there's, n- there's none of that. None of that. So – I don't want to suggest that the media was credulous of Kenny. There there was plenty of pushback and not just from the National Observer uh, and environmentalist media organizations, but even, you know, the Globe and Mail and others. CBC was like really skeptical of Jason Kenny's talking points, but it got widely covered. And this idea that maybe there is this grand conspiracy certainly went far and wide. Now we're starting to see headlines about, uh, you know, Gary Mason in the Globe and Mail. Alberta's report on anti-energy campaigns looks like a multi-million dollar dud. So the early signs, like when the report comes out, which I don't know when that's going to be because it's due on the 30th, but they might hold it for a few months, which is interesting politically, is the fact that this was all a huge nothing going to kind of like be a big whimper? 'Cause you'd think that there should be hell to pay for this, given that, you know, three and a half million dollars, yes. Vilification of charities being, you know, on this witch hunt for you know foreign influence. But more importantly than any of that, this
2: was time when BC's on fire. So heads should roll, right? BC's on fire, it looks like around six 600- hundred British Columbians died in this heat wave that we got last month, and we're about to go into another one. We lost an entire town burnt to the ground. Climate change is upon us. The very people who have been doing their level best to try and protect us have been attacked and vilified, not just in this report, but for years. It's not just Oh, Jason Kenney, when he was a federal minister and Ezra Levant and Peter Kent. This went all the way to Stephen Harper. It was the CRA audits that went on for several years. Organizations, and I've been speaking to, I'm going to be writing about this. People were attacked. People were physically attacked. They were tracked. They were stalked. What the environmental community has had to sustain, and not just them, also Indigenous people, for trying to stand up for the environment and trying to protect us and trying to bring and focus our attention on climate change. And the absolute campaign that's been going on for almost 10 years now, there should be hell to pay. The much bigger story is that the instruments of state power were employed against Canadians for expressing an opinion opposed to official government policy, and that's an absolute outrage.
0: A massive multi-year conspiracy theory that got propagated at the highest levels of government reaches a dead end. What's next? You know? and will people mm-hmm. care, and what should happen now?
2: Well, I can imagine that Aaron O'Toole wants this to just get buried and go away in some deep, dark hole. I don't know what's going to happen, but there should be an absolute apology being issued by everybody who was part of tarnishing the names and the reputations of good citizens. You know, I might disagree with one or two about the substance of their positions But it's it's absolutely outrageous that Canadians have not been free to express their opinion and have been subjected to subpoena power. I've spoken to individuals who were terrified that they were going to have their texts, their emails, their phones seized about climate change examined by the government. There needs to be a full-on apology issued for the terrible things that were done and the fact that we are only now finally getting to deal with climate change. And that reputational damage is staying with people, you know, in small communities, small towns, their neighbors still think and will continue to think, especially with the anti-Alberta brand being branded on them of being anti-Alberta, that will stick.
0: Sandy, it's been a minute, but you've done this with me many times. You know that we duly note things that otherwise might escape people's attention. What, uh, what have you to duly note this week?
2: My duly noted is the recent call by NDP leader Jigmeet Singh for the newly installed governor general who has barely broken in the china uh, over at Rideau Hall to refuse to dissolve Parliament and allow Justin Trudeau to go to a federal election if that's what he chooses to do. I'm just gobsmacked at the idea of the NDP calling for the British crown to interfere in Canadian elections and interfere with the Canadian democratic process. I don't know what he's smoking, but surely this makes no sense to um, feed this colonial narrative any further.
0: You're right. It suggests uh, an NDP position for this purely symbolic ceremonial position to actually be politically active. Like, the NDP wants a governor general who's like, no, I don't think so, to the prime minister. And that's a really odd position for the NDP to take. I guess maybe if they did think about this at all before doing it, the thought was that nobody gives a shit about that. Like, the NDP's take on colonialism or the NDP's take on the governor general won't be the important part. The important part will be that Jagmeet Singh needs to be able to tell the electorate I know you didn't want this election and I didn't want it either. And I did everything in my power to stop it from happening because it's purely cynical politics from Justin Trudeau and nobody wants this election. Like, is that the calculation here? Is there calculation here?
2: Is there a problem with saying that instead of issuing a letter to the governor general of Canada (laughs) asking her to stop this? This is a candidate for prime minister
0: here. It's a bit clown shoes. Duly noted. While we're talking about Jason Kenny, I would like to duly note Jason Kenny tweets, the Toronto Globe and Mail, the Toronto Globe, I like that. The Toronto, it's not, it's not inaccurate. The Toronto Globe and Mail is having a temper tantrum about pickup trucks. I'm happy to say that about 40% of the vehicles on Alberta roads are pickups. Maybe Toronto columnists should try getting around this province during a prairie blizzard in a smart car. So take that Toronto smart car wimps <laughs> that is with reference to a marcus g marcus G. i've never been sure a column by marcus the headline of which pickup trucks are a plague on canadian streets damn hot take from marcus and the globe and mail scott Moe, uh premier of saskatchewan also took a shot at the globe and mail for daring to come out uh, against pickup trucks for a lot of columnists that's kind of a proud moment when uh You've successfully painted a bullseye on yourself that's gotten the attention of, of two premiers. The thing that I'm duly noting is that I don't want to say plagiarize. I just said it, though. There was a column that appeared two weeks earlier in Passage by Davide Mastracci that was pretty damn similar. The, the headline of which was, it's time to ban the sale of pickup trucks. Now, there's no actual sentences lifted. And, you know, multiple columnists might make very similar arguments, But uh, Marcus G., his evidence for his argument was, like, one after the next, he used the same sources as Davide used. Bloomberg City Lab, pickup trucks are getting larger. Consumer Reports Investigation, the hidden dangers of pickup trucks. Recent U.S. report on overriding emissions controls. Like, it's very clear that this Globe columnist relied on Davide's column. And even that you can do, as long as you just say somewhere, as recently noted— by Davide Mistraci in Passage. And it's like, give this guy the Margaret Wente Award for originality in column writing. Like, it's just the most stingy, cheap, and it's this bullying thing of like, I can do this because who the hell are you? Passage, nobody's heard of you. And now we have this dialogue between the premiers and Marcus G where like, it's just a stolen take.
2: You know, I didn't see that first column and I will go and look at it now. So thanks to you, Jesse, for pointing it out. Duly noted.
0: along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2, along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com canadaland Canada Land. That is drinkag1.com drinkag1.com/canadaland. Canada Land. Check it out. Sandy, here's a recent headline this week in the Globe and Mail. Facebook partners with Globe, other outlets, to pay for content. And what we learned this week is that Facebook has announced that it is partnering with the Globe and Mail, Glacier Media, and Black Press under their News Innovation Test program. And this follows earlier announcement in May that uh, a bunch of sites, mostly small sites, including BlogTO, the news outlet that you work for, the National Observer, also... The Narwhal, Discourse Media, the Thai, Village Media, but then also like bigger legacy newspapers, Le Devoir, Saltwire, a string of newspapers out east. They were the original partners for the news innovation test. Everybody is partnering with Facebook to get paid by Facebook. And before I say another word about this, listeners should know that I have met with Facebook to get Canada Land included in the news innovation test. And as a result of that, I've recused myself from reporting on Facebook for Canada Land anymore. I will still talk about Facebook on this show where we analyze and offer opinions. As I chat with you about this, Sandy, maybe it'll be useful for people to hear it from a publisher's perspective, what this is and why I want in on it. But when it comes to actually trying to figure out what's going on and investigating it, my colleagues here will be doing that for Canada Land, not me, but... Let me ask you, what is your understanding of why the National Observer is a part of this and what it is?
2: Well, I don't want to. I can't comment on the National Observer. I don't want to comment on the National Observer. I think this entire trend, and I'm sorry to hear that Canada Land is part of it, but this is the nature of journalism where journalism is all starving and they are looking for any money that they can get. And this is a terrible, terrible initiative. It's a terrible thing to be part of, because it has and does, in my opinion, mute and silence the very important criticism that Facebook deserves and the coverage. I am astonished at how little both Google and Facebook have come under the microscope. I mean, there have been stories periodically here and there in Canada. But Really, the very muted coverage of their involvement, I mean, the absolute destruction of journalism everywhere goes right to the building of the Google and Facebook empires and their power. But Facebook in particular has been so irresponsible, you know, its algorithms and how it promotes divisive materials. Now we're seeing the disinformation that's going on over COVID, the incredible damage that has been done by this website to American democracy. I don't think that we've had anywhere near the kind of coverage and detailed examination that we need. And it is extremely disturbing to me that this is an entirely cynical initiative by Facebook. There's nothing about this that I think is positive. And I know that you have a more nuanced take about the issue around government support, the, the taxation that the Canadian government wants to bring in starting in 2022 as part of the OECD measures to tax digital revenues. But I actually think that that. That's a much more neutral and important way for us to start to be capturing revenues and supporting journalism.
0: I'm not even sure that I disagree with any of that, except for the part where you consider the government's program more neutral. One casualty of this is that, you know, we rely on, let's say, the Globe and Mail to explain what the heck this is. And there's really no way for a newsreader to like when you read this this Globe and Mail piece about why they're partnering with Facebook It says, under the agreement, Facebook pays publishers for the right to offer users links to content on specific topics. Well, what? I can already Mm -hmm. find links to specific Globe and Mail content. So why would Facebook be paying the Globe and Mail for links when not only does Facebook already offer that, but the Globe and Mail gives that to Facebook for free? The answer is Facebook's not paying for links. That's right. I guess what I see here is a macro trend that begins with government interference. I was there at the meetings like, I don't know, six years ago, where all of the news bosses of Canada got together and said, we're going down the tubes and somebody's got to bail us out. And it should be the government and it should be Google and it should be Facebook. And the government should give us money directly. And they should tax Facebook and Google and give us that money as well. That was the plan from the beginning. And then they went about lobbying for that. So it wasn't necessarily investigation and and news criticism of Facebook. It was like editorials and paid campaigns for years. And they have a lobby group and they've just been going hard at Facebook and Google. Friends of Canadian Broadcasting had wanted posters with Mark Zuckerberg's face on them all up around Canada saying you're a parasite, you're a news thief. But this is true, Jesse. <laughs> we can disagree on that because it's it's, it's, it's really hard to accuse him of stealing your content when you're giving him the content, <laughs> you know? like there is. It's not
2: about the content because the content's a very, very minor part. It's the destruction of the business model of the news.
0: And some people would say that automobiles killed the horse and buggy model.
2: Horses and buggies don't have an inherent value and importance to democracy. The press is the only industry that is actually explicitly mentioned in the Canadian Constitution, in the Charter of Rights. And it has a crucial and critical role to play. We're not talking horses and buggies. We're talking about pillars of democracy. Yes,
0: but that pillar of democracy is supposed to be an independent pillar. And what has happened is, in the interests of saving this stalwart champion of democracy, we have destroyed the independence of the press because as soon as the government got involved, the press was no longer independent, like by definition.
2: But Jesse, there is no clean, easy, sweet, beautiful answer here. But first of all, Facebook and Google and all of the digital platforms, but largely them, we have completely and utterly failed to tax them. And second of all, not only did they destroy the news media by competition, they also destroyed them by not getting taxed on their revenues the way that Canadian news media got taxed on their revenues. The playing field wasn't level. And I agree with you that there are inherent difficulties and problems But this is just far too serious for us just to be going ahead with this. We don't have a lot of menu items here. Either Facebook pays, this is a tiny amount of money that's involved, or we appropriately tax these behemoths who are making a huge amount of money and we actually funnel money into news media. When I think about the small local press, the coverage of municipal issues, I mean, these are critical, critical issues, and and they're gone. They're absolutely starved to death and gone from Canadian media.
0: Again, I'm going to push back against pretty much every part of that while kind of agreeing in essence with all of it. I'm going to pull that off. Uh, Watch me. (laughs) Uh, First of all, you're conflating the necessary taxation of these tech platforms with, oh, and therefore the money needs to go. You started with the premise that we need to somehow have an artificial lifeline for the news media, and there's no other option. Meanwhile, you work for the National Observer, which has been doing a wonderful job and growing over the years, and we have seen a proliferation of small sites that are rebuilding. And it's it's entirely possible that this stalwart champion of democracy, the legacy news media, has been doing a shitty job, and there was a reckoning coming. They
2: have been. and They have been. they right. have been weaknesses. So
0: the New York Times has proven that you actually can go to the Canadian consumer on a massive scale. Get t-
2: If you have the brand power right. of the and New then, York Times. So, so what
0: we've seen is that at the highest level, you can get Canadians to pay for news and support a really big, robust news organization. And then on a tiny little local level, there have been wonderful little sparks of light And maybe there's a process that the market was taking care of whereby we would have seen some of those players in the middle that have been underserving communities die out and then those little things get bigger. I have no doubt, actually, that people wake up every morning wanting information. Something would be there to provide that.
2: And if you put your children's teeth under their pillow, Jesse, in the morning they have loonies and You're absolutely right.
0: I have to accept as a business person, that that is a dead dream, that whatever faith I had in the early days, I mean, I loved what we were doing here because podcasting is this open ecosystem where we didn't have to ask anybody permission for a blue check mark or, you know, please, please put us on the newsstand. We could just do it and powered by people, we could build a news organization. And I thought, wow, this is the future of the media. And I have to be a grown up now because the interference of the Canadian government picking winners and losers and saying, we're going to make a list of approved media now we're going to champion for that list of approved media for the legacy newspaper industry. And we're going to put pressure on Facebook and Google. And then they, in turn, are also going to start picking winners and losers. And there's a spectrum now where on one end you might get deplatformed. And on the other end, you're now on Facebook. Forget about money from Facebook. I have no option. Facebook is going to either put us in the approved trustworthy news category, or they could on the other end of things push us down on the algorithm, or they could deplatform us entirely. Mm-hmm. And maybe I could say And there's
2: no transparency, no transparency by the, the way, way. No matter no matter what they pay or what you pay.
0: But it's the government who put them in that position.
2: Mm, I don't agree with that.
0: We are seeing outside of the Canadian government's influence the platforming of news writ large. So I have relationships with mm-hmm. Spotify to feature our podcasts, with Apple to feature our podcasts. Now it's Facebook yeah. who are like, yeah, even if they weren't giving money, I would want the blue check mark in the special news category. Yeah. You want to give us money? Yeah, I guess I'd be a fool to say no to it. And so increasingly this is the future of the news business where what we're going to see going forward, you're not going to know as a news reader is this news organization in my feed because this is what people want and people like me have Mm -hmm. funded it and subscribed to it, or they have an audience that they're selling advertising against, or more likely, the news that we're going to be getting are going to be propped up by a check from the government, a check from Facebook, a check from Google, and maybe other platforms, and the newsreader has nothing to say about it. And, And who gets into that category of approved news and who doesn't is completely not transparent, whether it's government or Facebook. You know, they're making these editorial decisions about inclusion, and any rational news publisher would say... I'm too small to resist these trends, so I have to try to get in on the right side of it because it's no longer an option to just sit this out entirely. But I do agree with you. This is fucking up my ability to be a good media reporter, at least in terms of reporting on these tech platforms. So I'm going to have to increasingly consider, like, why does a news organization split up the role of editor-in-chief from publisher for this very reason? Mm -hmm. When you've got these tiny newsrooms where it's like one person, they do both of those things. And now we're somewhere in the middle and we're quickly getting to a point where I'm going to have to decide which hat I'm going to wear because I can't wear them all.
2: My one ad for the New York Times is listen to and read Kara Swisher, who is on top of this stuff. Phenomenally. And uh, I I follow her almost religiously on this stuff. It is very, very concerning the degree of power and control. And Facebook, I don't trust a single thing that that company says or pledges to do. It's an interesting case because
0: all the things you said about how Facebook has perverted democracy and the fake news problem and, and, and the role they've played, you might say to Facebook, well, what are you going to do to turn this around and actually help the news? And then their answer would be, okay, well, what if we actually funded news? And that's exactly what they're doing.
2: There's no arm's length is the problem.
0: Well, there's nothing in the deals. They explicitly don't want anything to do with your coverage. Like this Facebook news initiative test, whatever, they're like, we don't even want to look at your editorial. Like there's nothing in it. But then you could ask the question, yeah, but if you get on Facebook's bad side because you've been critical of them, maybe you don't get in at all. You know,
2: the biggest thing that I feel is that for too long, we abdicated all responsibility to address any of the issues. And what we lost in the process, we've lost our press and especially our small local press, which is a deep tragedy. And we have to be committed to repairing that.
0: That's shortcuts. Thank you for uh, it's always so good to talk to you. Thanks for joining me.
2: So great to hear your voice. We're on Twitter
0: at Canadaland. I can be emailed at Jesse at com. I read everything you send. Sandy, where can people find you?
2: You can find me in the National Observer and on Twitter at Garrosino.
0: This episode is produced by Tiffany Lamb with additional production by Tristan Capicchione. Theme music is by So Called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do and you want to receive ad-free versions of all of our podcasts, we absolutely rely on listener support to make this stuff. So uh, hit the link in the show notes or go to canadaland.com/join.